invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians and the sixth chapter. I'd like to read in your hearing Galatians six and the first two verses. Indeed, this is the word of God. No more direct occasion to hear from him than in the reading of the scriptures. Galatians six, verse one and two. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Amen. Shall we pray again together? We would do all that you have summoned us to do, O Lord, no matter how it may cut against the grain of our own personal preferences and inclinations. For indeed, you summon us to do many things that do not come natural to us as sinners. We ask that you will make us faithful in these evil days to do more than simply scold and rebuke the world. Pray that you will make us faithful to love in Christ-like ways those who, like us, are sinners in need of his grace. Help us in this portion of our study of your word. To those ends in particular, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we asked ourselves the question as a church, how would we respond to the gay couple who joined us on a Sunday morning for worship. That is to say, in all of our self-conscious opposition to homosexuality as a lifestyle, grounded in the scriptures themselves, would we nonetheless as a church realize that such an event presented us an opportunity to show Christ-like love to those who need the gospel. In other words, would we be, we asked last week, a sinner-friendly church? That's the gist of that book I've commended to you by Rosaria Butterfield, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She actually was that person walking into a church very similar to ours. Her testimony was that she received that Christ-like love, but she writes her book in part to say to other churches, is that how you would have received me, as a lesbian, I'd entered into your assembly. So last week we looked at our Lord's example. This is the pattern for sinner friendliness. We talked about what we don't mean by that. We talked about what that does involve. And we also spent some time recognizing that as a church, in order to be in a Christ-like way, sinner friendly, we're going to have to overcome certain barriers that arise from very legitimate Responses to homosexuality. Righteous indignation, for example. Wise caution, for example. Even moral repugnance in themselves legitimate responses, but cannot be barriers to ministry in this post-U.S. v. Windsor culture. Now, I said last week that's the second of really two tests the church is facing in our day. One is, will you stand 
against all the pressures of our society for what is true. The second test is, do you really understand the gospel? Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to point out that there is a second way, a, a further way that will be tested in our understanding of the gospel. A more personal way and what may be a more unsettling way if we're not prepared for it. It will be more likely the way that we are confronted with this opportunity to minister to those struggling with the sin of homosexuality. It will not come necessarily with a visitor to our church. It will come through the testimony of our own membership. The time is coming in this church, I have no doubt, as it has in many churches where one that is known and loved as a brother and sister in the Lord says, I'm struggling with this particular sin. Are you ready for that? Matthew's Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The author of the book, Love into the Light, the Gospel, the Homosexual in the Church, writes... As a pastor, I have spoken to scores of men and women who have spent years worshiping in church while battling alone with same sex attraction. They were terrified to tell anyone and convinced that if other Christians knew their secret, they would be tagged and discarded. Peter Hubbard goes on to ask, how can Christians live in a culture that promotes the gay lifestyle, yet worship in a culture that never talks about it, other than possibly to condemn it. Is the atmosphere of our church different from the church the Apostle Paul ministered to? He apparently knew people in the church at Corinth who had left the gay lifestyle, and he fearlessly referred to their new identity. Could the way we speak or don't speak about same-sex attraction be an indicator of a deficient understanding of the gospel of Jesus. So that's our question for this morning, perhaps even more poignant. How will you respond to the brother or sister in the Lord who says to you, I'm struggling with that sin? We're continuing in our series, USV Windsor, the wake thereof, that's a reference to the Supreme Court's decision last year about same-sex marriage. We've looked at three questions now, and we're on the third. How then should we live? And today, brothers and sisters, I want us to recognize that this ministry that we're now considering is going to require from us not just a willingness to be loving. It's actually going to require of us a certain kind of culture as a church, the ministry that we're called to, to all sinners, will require a certain kind of way of being for us as a church. A certain kind of awareness, first of all, a certain kind of receptiveness, second of all, and a certain kind of perspective in the third place. That's the outline of our next few moments. Here's the awareness that I have in mind, first of all. As a church, we need to be aware of the complex reality of same-sex attraction. Now, maybe more than anything else, the events of the last few months, the last couple of years, 
should make obvious to us that we cannot afford not to think clearly and carefully about something that is quite foreign to most of us. There are men and women all around us who find themselves relationally and emotionally and sexually attracted to those of their same gender. You will not be successful in ministering the gospel to those people if you've made no effort at all to understand their sin struggle. That's so clear from the passage I read from Galatians chapter 6. Here the apostle is exhorting us to that very kind of ministry. A ministry to come alongside and, and to help those struggling with sin. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That means Paul's talking about ministry to those who are sinning and who are recognizing their sinning. They've been caught some way that that's come to your attention at the very least. And your right response is to go to them as a brother or sister and seek to restore them. To call them to repentance, indeed, but to do that with gentleness. That's the context. Notice how Paul, as he continues, recognizes that this is a risky thing, especially with certain kinds of sin. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Going and helping someone with a sin problem is a little bit like going to rescue someone who's drowning. You've got to be a good swimmer. If you're going to go out in the water after that person who's drowning, not a few have sought to rescue and they've gone down with the drowning victim. Not a few immature Christians with the intention of helping another Christian with their struggle of sin have have gotten sucked into the very same sin. Sometimes it's best for you to call someone else to go in after the one who's. Drowning, Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's those who are spiritual, a reference to maturity in the faith, that should restore him. But then he goes on to say something that's key to this whole sermon this morning. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, of course, is the law of love. That's shorthand. Or an indirect way of talking about Christ's emphasis on love. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. That's the law of Christ. But that expression, bear one another's burdens. You've used that in various contexts quite appropriately. You bear someone's burden when you come alongside them. And what they are dealing with becomes something you are dealing with by virtue of your ministry to them. You're sharing their load You're coming alongside in such a way that their struggle becomes something of your struggle as you seek their victory over that sin. And my point to you is you cannot bear someone's burden without understanding their sin and their temptation the best you can. Otherwise, you're just like the man standing on the shore saying to someone who's drowning, come this way, come this way. Flail about in this direction. That's not saving someone from sin. Here are three things the church very much needs to understand about same-sex attraction 
to minister effectively to those in her own midst who struggle with it first. Same-sex attraction is more than a choice. Now, please listen to me carefully in this regard. It is the case that many in our day have spoken of homosexuality as an innate orientation, something you're born with, just like you're born with blue eyes, you're born gay. That is the creed of our day with regard to this subject. And many Christians sensing the need, quite rightly, to make the case that homosexuality is sinful from top to bottom, have denied anything of the truth of that and said, in fact, quite contrarywise, homosexuality is nothing more than a choice. You choose to lust in your heart. You choose to pursue gratification of that lust. And that is seen by some Christians as utterly essential to defending the biblical view of homosexuality as sin. Now, there's a truth in that. The truth in that is that it is our will that's involved in our desires. As a matter of fact, some theologians don't actually care to distinguish between the two. I'm among those in that camp that the will and the desire are part of the same faculty of the soul. So when you desire something, you're placing your will upon it. When a man lusts after a woman in his heart, there's an act of the will involved in this. There's truth then in what's being said. Here's the problem. The reality of sin in general and of same-sex attraction in particular is more complex and it is deeper than mere choices. When you fail to recognize that, you can alienate the very ones you're seeking to minister to. Let me give you an example of a testimony of someone who is a Christian, even a minister of the gospel... His testimony is struggle in just this area. I've quoted from the book, Is God Anti-Gay? It's a very biblical treatment of homosexuality by a Christian minister in the UK, one who struggled with same-sex attraction. He tells of his experience of coming to grips with this particular sin problem. It was the summer after his graduation from high school. He writes, I'd always been someone who formed close friendships. But I was now beginning to realize there was something a bit more than that going on. Though I'd had a couple of girlfriends, I'd never felt the same kind of bond as I had with one or two of my close male friends. As the long summer began and there was less going on to distract me, the truth began to bite. The words began to form in my mind. I think I'm gay. This was not a welcome development. I wanted to be like everyone else and to be into what everyone else was into. I wanted to have feelings for girls like my friends had. And yet, instead of having feelings for girls with my friends, I was finding myself having feelings for my friends. Now, when a Christian insists that homosexuality is nothing more than a conscious choice, they're certainly conflicting with that particular testimony. And Sam Alvary's testimony is very common, even among those who have no desire to identify with Christianity, to say that their first feelings that they identified and recognized as same-sex attraction were very unwelcome, and they sought to overcome them. They resisted them from the outset. To say that same-sex attraction is nothing more than a choice 
is certainly in conflict with those testimonies. Much more important than that, it's in conflict with a biblical view of sin as something that goes to our very nature. Can I remind you briefly of that humongous and highly important debate between St. Augustine and the heretic Pelagius? Pelagius asserted that sin was nothing more than an act of the will. And Pelagius believed that all of us were born in the world just like Adam. We were morally neutral. And the only way that we sinned, the only way that we were guilty before God is by consciously deciding to do things that were forbidden. Augustine said, you don't understand sin, Pelagius. Sin goes deeper than decisions. It goes to our very nature. Augustine taught, and the church has followed him universally since, that after Adam's sin, every one of us is born with a sinful nature. And it's out of that nature that decisions arise. Here's what this means. You do not need to surrender the biblical teaching of the sinfulness of homosexual deeds and desires when you acknowledge that can be something that is part of a man's nature. There's something, we call it same-sex attraction, that's much deeper than bad decisions. Ed Welch a Christian counselor and author. You've read some of his books with Prophet. I'm sure he points out that most sin works on a level where we don't feel like we are consciously choosing it. You know why? It's because we have a sin nature. He writes homosexuality is natural in the same way that anger or selfishness is natural. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 7. Listen to him talking about a struggle with sin that goes far deeper than just decisions. I do not understand my own actions for what I for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, apply this good Bible doctrine about the complexity of sin in this case as you minister to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction saying to you that Christians can err on two sides in talking about this thing that is commonly spoken of by professionals in our day, homosexual orientation. You know that term. American Psychological Society defines homosexual orientation this way, an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic and sexual attraction towards the same sex. Some Christians will say, yeah, that's true. And there's nothing sinful about having such an orientation. They're wrong. They're badly mistaken. That's a sign of sin and brokenness in us. Other Christians will say there's no such thing as such an orientation at all. It's just behavior. They, too, are badly mistaken. Our Southern Baptist brothers have served us well in 
these days and speaking on this subject. Denny Burke is such a man. He writes, the Bible teaches us to war against both the root and the fruit of sin. In this case, homosexual orientation is the root and homosexual behavior is the fruit. The spirit of God aims to transform both. Here's why I've lingered on this subject. It's not conservative evangelical church. It's not to provide any excuse for homosexuality. Deed or desire or orientation or inclination or attraction, whatever. It's to impress upon you who will minister to brothers and sisters struggling with this sin. The true complexity of it. Does it affect at all your powers of compassion to recognize that this is a sin that can go very deep, like many of your own sins in your own life? Same-sex attraction is more than a choice. First thing to understand. Second thing to be aware of. Same-sex attraction is mysterious in its origins. You probably know that this is a subject of intense interest and study in our day. Why do some human beings experience this, whatever you would call it, typically referred to as same-sex attraction, and others never have foreign to their experience? Why? What's going on? Many have sought a link in genetics, some fascinating studies done to try to show a link genetically. There's a study in Sweden in 2010. 71 self-identified homosexual persons. In this case, the 71 self-identified homosexual persons had identical twins. And so that was of interest because if it's a simple genetic issue, then identical twins who share the same genes will always be either homosexual or so oriented or not. But in this study, only seven of the 71 sets of twins were both self-identified homosexuals. It's been very inconclusive. All attempts to link this kind of attraction to our genes. By the way, I've already said this. I'll say it again. If it is so established, it will be utterly and completely irrelevant to the Christian position on this subject. If you could establish for me that my impatience with my children is coming from some kind of genetic uh, thing inside me, I'd say that's fascinating, but it doesn't remove from me at all the responsibility for my sin. Christians believe in a doctrine called original sin. That means that sin is inherited and the effects of sin are inherited. It would change nothing. More helpful studies about the origins of homosexuality have shown, not conclusively, but in various ways, links to experiences in childhood, a young adult experience, sexual abuse in childhood, the confusion that results from that, exposure to pornography which is a whole world that leads from one sexual perversion to another, to another direct linkage. In young women, abuse by men, 
in dating relationships or in their homes, resulting in fear and distrust. In young men, alienation from their peers as a result of certain differences they find in their own personalities. One particularly prominent link that Christian professionals have noted, poor relationships or no relationships with parents of the same gender. Now, these are not exhaustive and they're not conclusive in many people's minds. I'm saying to you that there is something mysterious still to us about this question. Why do some struggle with same sex attraction and others do not? I'm making these observations to you not to excuse homosexuality. You can't blame your sin on anything in your past. In the broadest way possible, I say that. But doesn't this help better equip us to bear one another's burdens? If we actually are interested in some of these factors to seek to understand why some Christians could struggle with this, doesn't it affect your ability to minister to someone if you have at least a clue that sins against them, for example, have something to do in certain cases with this particular struggle? Does that enlarge your heart of compassion at all? Should. If you're seeking to bear their burden with them. It's more than a choice, this same-sex attraction we're talking about. It's mysterious in its origins. And then the third thing I want you to hear me say, and please hear me out. Same-sex attraction is not necessarily eradicable in this life. When I say that totally eradicating this sin is not possible for everyone, hear me, I am not denying the transforming power of the gospel. Matter of fact, there is the testimony of some given over to the homosexual lifestyle that God delivers them wholly and completely. They have absolutely total deliverance from that particular form of temptation even. And some have testimony that God has put in his place heterosexual attraction and desire that has led them into happy marriages. Praise be to God. That's the testimony of some. It is not the testimony of all Christians who struggle with this sin. They will testify to the grace of God in repentance for it. They will testify to the grace of God to refrain from outward expressions of it. They will say to you, I have not yet, and I've been struggling for decades, I'm not yet delivered from temptation in this particular area. Folks, you have a biblical category for this. You can explain this. It is the not yet part of our salvation. We believe that our salvation is already Received by us. We are already, for example, adopted as sons of God. But Paul also says that the creation is eagerly waiting for the, our adoption as sons. There's something that's still not yet true. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. But why that new creation is going to be consummated in a day that's come. You have a category for this. 
this phenomenon of same-sex attraction and the sin that it represents and that leads to, by way of struggle, being a long-standing problem. In just a minute, I'll ask for a show of hands of all those people who have ceased struggling with the sin of pride. You're going to be ready for that? A show of hands, all those who no longer struggle with selfishness. Are you ready? Okay, I see a show of hands. Everyone who no longer struggles with selfishness, who has seen that sin eradicated, please raise your hand. No takers. Pride? Raise your hand. Gentlemen, now you. Lust. Any of you succeeded in eradicating this sin from your life? No takers. I'm not raising my hand. (laughs) You and I understand this phenomenon. Paul did. Romans 7 again. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? One more time. These are not observations made. To give an excuse for homosexuality, it's certainly not offered as an invitation to any of us to simply be resigned to our sin and not to fight it with all that is in us. But does it inform you? Does it help you to bear your brother's burden in the struggle with sin, to recognize that this is no quick fix for many? It's a lifelong struggle for some. And your ministry needs to be so geared, if necessary, for that. I've chosen to spend most of my time this morning on this first point, an awareness of the complex reality of same-sex attraction. Let's look secondly at a certain kind of receptiveness. A receptiveness to those willing to confess their struggles with same-sex attraction. I'm going to read from Rosario Butterfield's book, but as I'm doing so, would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19? Rosario Butterfield speaks of the reality of Christians who feel unable to share this struggle with their fellow Christians. She writes, shortly after becoming a Christian, I counseled a woman who was in a closeted lesbian relationship and a member of a Bible-believing church. No one in her church knew. Therefore, no one in her church was praying for her. Therefore, she sought and received no counsel. There was no bearing of one with the other for her. No confession, no repentance, no healing, no joy in Christ. Just isolation and shame and pretense. I told her that my heart breaks for her isolation and shame and asked her why she didn't share with anyone in her church her struggles. She said, Rosaria, if people in my church really believed that gay people could be transformed by Christ, they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way they do. Rosaria is speaking of something that is not uncommon. Will likely become more common Christians struggling with this sin within our churches, but all alone. The Bible speaks of the power of confession 
of sin. Acts 19 tells us about church life in the early church. Uh, some interesting things taking place here. The Apostle Paul is in town and there are all kinds of exciting things taking place as a result uh, manifestations of the Spirit in particular, the Holy Spirit's power, are becoming something of interest to itinerant exorcists. Now, these itinerant exorcists went from town to town, apparently, and offered to, to cast out demons. And it's very possible that they didn't even believe in demons, but they were making their money because lots of people do. So they saw actually some pretty amazing spiritual activity. And so they tried to cast out one particular person's demon by appealing to Jesus. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on Man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them. So they fled of the house naked and wounded. And that's not actually my, the main point. That's the necessary context of the passage that I am really going to point you to. This is rather, uh, shall we say, buzz creating. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you hear what happened? There are some closeted exorcists in this church. They, I trust, are new Christians. They're still figuring certain things out. And they've got these pasts and they come even into the present. And they see this take place and their instinctive response. It's a approved response in the scriptures is to confess publicly. And they have a book burning. You've heard of book burnings. It came from the Bible. This is one of multiple passages I could go to to emphasize how much confession of sin to our brothers and sisters is often utterly essential to genuine repentance and deliverance from that sin. Sometimes it's fair to say you haven't repented unless you've confessed. That sin to someone, certainly if it's against that person. You've experienced, many of you I know, that it wasn't until you confessed your sin to some other human being, another brother or sister in the Lord, that God began to break the power of that sin. I know what that's like. Many of you have. I trust all of you. That is a context in which sin is left behind in new ways as others Cast out that demon, so to speak, by their prayers. Remember, some of these demons don't come out, Jesus said, but by prayer and fasting. I'm not here talking about standing up in prayer meeting. I'm talking here about speaking in the context of those relationships 
that you're pursuing with brothers and sisters, one that you pursue for this very purpose, perhaps with an older brother or sister, those encounters you have with your elder. Here's my question. What would it take for a brother or sister to realizing that his confession of sin in the area of homosexuality would do him good in this church? Well, it would take a church that's already doing certain things and is poised to do other things. Already doing what? Already honest about their struggle with sin in general. Remember, I talked about how a church has to have a certain kind of culture to minister to Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction. One of those elements of that culture is a church that's already honest about their own struggles with sin. Tim Keller has written that churches should feel more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like the waiting room for a job interview. You know, the waiting room and the job interview, everybody's dressed well, got it together. And by the way, the best applicant for this job. You're sitting around the urologist office waiting room, and guess what? You look around the room, yes, I know why you're here, General. That's how churches should be. You're here because you have a problem with sin, folks. That's why you're here. You know it. You're seeking the gospel remedy for it. In a culture that, of a church that doesn't share our actual everyday ordinary sins, like bitterness or depression or marital strife or parental failure, even abuse, of lust, and its varied forms, do we really expect that if we don't share those things, that someone who knows this is a particularly serious sin in the Bible would actually come clean with us on this? Do you want them to be the only one confessing sin? They probably won't be. Church that's already doing something, already honest about struggles with sin, and then a church that's ready, poised to do something else, to respond graciously to someone who confesses this sin. Five things you should do when your Christian friend tells you that they struggle with this sin. Five things. First of all, thank them. I mean it. Thank them for doing something so vulnerable, so courageous, and so honoring to you. As to share that with you. Secondly, reassure them that you love them and are committed to them as a brother or sister. Thirdly, listen to them. Listen a lot. Have them tell you about this struggle. Fourthly, pray for them. Commit to pray for them. It's the most you can do. Pray for them. And then, number five. Walk through the door that they have opened themselves in ministering to them. That ministry may look like clarifying what they think the Bible says about this sin. It may look like eventually encouraging them to take this to someone who's overseeing them, spiritually responsible for their soul. It certainly means you're 
as a brother or sister bearing their burden, holding them accountable and seeking to struggle with God for grace for them. Ed Welch suggests asking such a person how the church has sinned against them. He seems to assume that they'll have something to say in that area. And as they respond, confess that sin to them because you're part of the church. If the church has sinned, you have borne part of the responsibility of that corporately. Al Mohler says, love them more than they love their sin. Are you poised for that kind of ministry? You need to get your head around this. Brothers and sisters, it's just a matter of time. I'm convinced before Christ calls you to that kind of ministry. Last, after an awareness and after a receptiveness, a biblical perspective on three important subjects that I can only name today. This series is not going to allow developing these three other subjects. They could actually be a series of their own. But I want to highlight them at least for your further reflection. These three subjects that we need a biblical perspective on are vital, not just for ministering to those struggling with same-sex attraction, but it's vital to our health as a congregation in the broadest sense. Number one, biblical, not stereotypical notions of masculinity and femininity. Here's something that happens with the church. We've got all the all the winds of culture blowing a certain way. In order to stand up to those winds, we lean into the wind and and we are not balanced. Some Christians are tempted by a gay friendly culture around us to think that the main defense against homosexuality is some kind of macho view of manliness. Some kind of prissy view of femininity. What's your gut response? Is it more manly to draw birds? To find yourself uh, desiring rather to draw birds than it is to blow them out of the air? What's your instinctive response? Hmm. Is it unladylike to prefer playing sports over watching chick flicks? Be careful. Parents especially, this is a danger for us. We're so uptight about the sins of our culture. We can actually convey to sons and daughters who don't fit a stereotype of masculinity or femininity. There's something wrong with you. You're you're different. Our culture will answer the question for us, for them. Maybe you're gay. Maybe not. Remember the man we're studying on Sunday nights. The man, the man's man, who cries a lot in public and writes poetry, etc. Biblical, not stereotypical notions of masculinity and femininity. Secondly, the nobility and normality of the single state. You need to recognize that there are Christians for whom this struggle with same-sex attraction will mean for practical reasons that they will remain single. They will be celibate. If the church has a sub-biblical notion of that state, they will not find a home with us. Not hospitable 
home. When I speak of the nobility of the single state, I have in mind the fact that we serve a savior who was a confirmed bachelor. We don't have a problem with that. It's a noble calling. The Apostle Paul makes clear and in certain ways, in certain respects, it's a better calling than marriage. I can't open that all up today. I have in the past. The Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. Some of our most influential Christian leaders have, for the very sake of the influence and ministry to the church, chosen this. It's noble and it's also normal. When I say normal, I'm not speaking statistically. If you think merely statistically, you'll recognize, especially in the church, most people marry. If you think merely statistically, you'll think there's something abnormal about not marrying. That's not how I'm using the word normal. I'm using the word to describe the fact that in the scriptures, it's very clear it is not God's will for some to marry. And God enriches the church in just that way. This is a thought-provoking line out of a book called Singled Out. Why celibacy must be reinvented in today's church. The author is right. A church that believes that acting on homosexual desire is a sin must also provide a rich theology of celibacy. Otherwise, that church is like someone who's pro-life yet anti-adoption. Think about that. Third subject we need to have right perspective on is the true value and the biblical expression of friendship. Someone has called homosexuality a friendship disorder. What they mean by that is that gays and lesbians, so-called, have found something missing in our society. True friendship, same sex friendship. And without biblical categories, they have pursued such friendship to perverse expressions. Along the way, as that culture has embraced such expressions, it threatens to ruin friendship for us, for the church of Jesus Christ. In a culture that celebrates gay love, casts suspicion, oftentimes on healthy friendships. Men and boys in particular feel this. Boys know they can't show too much devotion to friendship in our day without being teased, without being accused even. Some kind of sexual misorientation. Men don't have a category in our day for male friendship that approaches anything of, of intimacy in the way the scripture actually invites us to pursue. It amounts to drinking beer together and watching TV. That's male friendship. In our culture, my family and I are reading Pilgrim's Progress, and we're realizing it's written in a different day. Certainly not written in the day in which we live. Uh, one of my sons remarked on how Christian in Interpreter's House is again and again taken by the hand of the host, the male host, to be led into another room. That was 
utterly normal and still is in certain cultures, not impacted by sexual liberation as ours. David's expression of his love for Jonathan couldn't be seriously said today, could it? That all kinds of suspicions. Remember the scene in, in The Lord of the Rings uh, where Frodo and Sam are reunited in that tower in Mordor? And you remember how Tolkien expresses the intimacy of that moment? I'm sure Tolkien would have put it that way. If you're writing in our day, homoerotic love cannot rob the church of the love of friendship. This was even clear to C.S. Lewis in his day. He makes the observation, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves. The crown of life in the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. It's interesting extremes. The ancient world is not balanced, but it's extreme on that side. Friendship is the ultimate love. On the other side, we have nothing of a category for it. Lewis writes this as a bachelor for most of his life. He was a great celebrant of friendship, as you will know. These three subjects bear much more time than we'll give them in this series. What I'm trying to say in pointing them to you is that in the wake of U.S. v. Windsor, we will feel the torque of societal pressure that will distort or downplay certain biblical values as we seek to defend ourselves from sin, distort our view of masculinity and femininity, distort our view of those who are called to a single life, distort our view of same-sex friendship. Here's the burden of this sermon this morning. It's that we would be prepared for ministry to those struggling with same-sex attraction, even in our own midst as a church. I believe, brothers and sisters, it's just a matter of time before we have that opportunity. We need to be a kind of church that, I'll use the expression, is safe for brothers and sisters to share their struggles and get help with in this area. You know, our culture... There is celebrated something called coming out by gays and lesbians. Of course, by that they mean a bold and even defiant proclamation of a homosexual identity coming out of the closet to make public and unapologetic what's already been happening in private and to seek popular support for it. And it's happening. That's what coming out means in our culture. This is the celebration of wickedness. But as a church, there's another kind of coming out that we should be all about encouraging. It's the courage of brothers and sisters to finally, as friendship and fellowship entails, be willing to be known for their struggle, who don't want to be alone in that struggle, who want help with the sinfulness involved in that struggle, 
and who do want the support of a congregation as they seek to escape that sin. That's a kind of coming out this church and every faithful church should seek to foster by its very culture. Is it possible that men and women who boldly profess their homosexuality in our society could be praised for that? And yet a brother or sister seeking to flee this sin and seek help in doing so could be shamed for doing that? God forbid. God help us. Let's pray together. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that the power of your gospel is not limited to our ability to get it right in every conversation, in every encounter, every effort or attempt made to minister to sinners. Indeed, Lord, we are thankful that this has not been true of us. Your power has far surpassed the the gifts and graces of those around us. But we have found it to be so important to have others around us who bear our burdens and to struggle with us to overcome with us the sin in our lives. We have been the recipient of that ministry, flawed though it's been. We want together to be able to do that. As we reach out to those you place before us, no matter their sin. So give us these helps, we pray. And all this, make the gospel more precious to us, more clear to us, more practical to us. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.